This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore, this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally, mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, F. Scott Field, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Brandon Pone. Today, we welcome Dr. William Jeffries, who is the Senior Associate Dean for Medical Education at the University of Vermont Larner College of Medicine. We'd like to give a shout out and a personal thanks to Dr. Gail Jensen at Creighton University for telling us about the active learning method that the University of Vermont has adopted, uh, discontinuing their traditional lecture-based methods. Uh, Dr. Jeffries, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today to speak with us, uh, as we greatly appreciate your time and efforts. Um, do you think you could give our listeners some background about uh, who you are and about your experience in the field of academia? Sure, and, and thanks for having me on tonight. Uh, the, my background is uh, as a, a basic scientist. I've been a scientist for over 30 years. And uh, I have a particular interest in medical education, although I was once in charge of a graduate education program as well, getting people their PhDs in pharmacology. I've been at uh, several medical schools. Um, I was at Creighton University for 21 years. And in 2009, I came to the University of Vermont as the Senior Associate Dean for Medical Education. And uh, at Vermont, I'm primarily responsible for the curriculum the uh, uh, admissions uh, for medical students, uh, student affairs, uh, and all the educational facilities. Awesome, Bill. And, you know, when I first heard about this method, I was kind of like, huh, you know, I wonder how that whole process started with the no lecture um, approach. And do you think you could tell our listeners kind of the story about how the process to change to the active learning paradigm uh, started at the University of Vermont? And could you discuss some of the key research and detail that kind of drove that decision to do that? Sure. Uh, as a, uh, an educator in a medical school, I had spent a lot of time uh, teaching and, and was uh, quite enamored with teaching and, and to the point where I was put in charge of the medical education curriculum uh, at Creighton University. And uh, at, during that time, I uh, spent a great deal of my efforts developing lectures and delivering lectures. And one of the things that happened along the way was that because of my experience in medical education, I was invited to edit a book on the teaching methods for teaching medical students in in, uh, in medical school. And uh, with my co-editor, Dr. Katie Huggett, we proceeded to gather all the best practices and all of the different methods for teaching medical students and, and put them into one book. And when we were doing that, it became apparent there that, uh, A, I, I knew very little about medical education compared to what I thought I knew, uh, but B, that although my area of interest and expertise was large group teaching, uh, it, it became apparent that there was a number of methods, particularly used for large group teaching, that, that were starting to emerge that, that looked like they increased uh, student learning and student satisfaction. And among those were uh, the, the large group methods that, that had been 
becoming prevalent in physics teaching, particularly uh, fostered by uh, Dr. Eric Mejour at Harvard. And uh, also uh, in business school, uh, Dr. Larry Michelson, who teaches uh, a method called team-based learning. And those two methods seem to be uh, quite effective and uh, and interesting to me. So when I moved to Vermont, I, I told them, I warned them what was going to happen. I said, I want to start in- introducing these types of methods more and more into the curriculum. And by 2012, we were really on a path to do that, to increase the, the amount of active learning. By about 2014, a, a meta-analysis came out in the Proceedings in National Academy of Sciences looking at these active learning methods versus lectures and um, and gathered 225 different studies of uh, active learning methods in science, technology, education, and mathematics teaching and uh, compared their efficacy. And the data that came out were pretty staggering. Of these 225 studies, none found that lecturing was better than active learning. And um, the, in fact, it was quite the opposite. The student performance increased by about half a standard deviation when you're, you're looking at the grades of the course. Exam scores improved by about 6% uh, in, in these courses. And students in classes that eliminated lecturing, uh, well, students, students that had lecturing versus the um, active learning were about uh, 1.5 times more likely to fail a course. So it was pretty clear that lecturing um, among all the large group methods of teaching was was really the the least effective. And so we made the decision to eliminate uh, lectures in our curriculum entirely. Yeah, Bill, those are some pretty staggering numbers. I mean, you know, do you know of any of the limitations of some of these research articles you just mentioned? And, And are you aware of any maybe research that refutes active learning models? There's been a lump, number of attempts to refute them, um, but the the uh, most of the data that are presented are anecdotal, and and really don't pass muster with respect to statistical rigor. The only possible way that that um, that you could argue against it would be that uh, there would be a publication bias, and that is if you find no difference between active learning and and lecturing, that you wouldn't be inclined to publish it. Or that even if you, you were trying to introduce a new learning method and it, and it came out worse than lecturing, again, you wouldn't be inclined to publish that. But the, the authors of this meta-analysis, Freeman et al., who, who uh, looked at, at these uh, studies, did an analysis uh, and determined that you would have to have uh, over 400 studies that were failed to be published that would, in order to overcome the, 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 the results that they had found. Um, one other thing I would say about the Freeman study, and this was really compelling to us as a medical school, was that they, they analyzed this as if it were a uh, prospective randomized uh, drug trial. And they said that basically, if uh, this were a, a prospective randomized trial, that, that they would have to stop the study for ethical reasons because they, the, uh, the lecturing was uh, significantly worse than, than the active learning methods. Wow, that's pretty interesting to hear. And that's really how much, how powerful that is. And, you know, Bill, after reading kind of the story a little bit more about what happened, it seemed like when you first implemented this idea, it looks like you definitely had some initial pushback. But after you showed the evidence of how more beneficial it is to professors, it seemed that they came around and it was it seemed to be okay. But I'm going to kind of pose a hypothetical situation to you. So what if the rules were switched? So how would you recommend that a professor within a medical school go about bringing up this idea or perhaps any other innovative idea that is perhaps unpopular to improve teaching um, to the dean for consideration for implementation? 
Well, I think that the the ways that I used it to convince the faculty are the same way that you would use it in reverse. The people that work at a an academic medical center uh, are basically all scientists and clinicians. And if you create an emotional argument around something, you're not going to get very far. But if you provide data to show that that the, your method or your idea has merit, um, it's it's pretty hard to ignore that. And and so. If you show that this method that you're trying to introduce has proven efficacy and, and actually is, is superior to something that, that is in current practice, most people find that a pretty compelling argument. It's certainly something that I found compelling when I was in a position to make a decision about it. And um, so I think that that is one of the keys. The other one is that uh, most faculty have a small component of of, of different courses. And, and certainly in medical school, we have a lot of team teaching and, and, and faculty are pretty much left to their own devices with respect to introducing new methods or new materials. And so um, uh, we have had this for many years in, in the various curricula that I've been associated with. And that is that you can just introduce it yourself and, and to see if it's any, any good or not and to test. And, and, and you know, everybody's can, is knows the scientific method at a medical school, so you can design a small study, introduce a new method, and study it, and then bring it back to uh, to people who are in charge of the courses or, or in, in other circumstances, and and really provide the data and 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 show that it that it works. And finally, you know, if you convince the students that they're benefiting, and the students know that they're benefiting by their virtue of their grades or their satisfaction. Um, they'll want that, and they'll want to know why this these types of methods aren't being introduced in other aspects of the curriculum. Yeah, Bill, I think student buy-in is a huge uh, token for sure. Um, you know, and as you know, Brandon and I are both physical therapists, and we love learning from other healthcare professionals. Um, and we're hoping to enlighten our audience uh, about some of the many healthcare fields out there. Um, so could you break down for us uh, how the medical program is structured at the University of Vermont, uh, going through the three levels, and how the active learning component is implemented? Yes, they, uh, the curriculum is uh, divided into roughly three equal-ish parts. The first is called the Foundations uh, of Medicine, and uh, that covers all of the basic science aspects of the of things that you need to know for medicine. And those courses uh, are very ripe for uh, active learning intervention because the students are primarily working in classrooms and um, studying from videos, books, and, and etc. And uh, the students first take a, uh, a course called Foundation of Clinical Sciences, and, and that uh, is, a, is a fundamental coverage of the basic sciences that are foundational to medicine. And that sort of is a leveler as well, because people who come to medical school generally come from a variety of different backgrounds and, and majors as undergraduates. So we want to make sure everyone's on the same page. Once they're finished with that, they go through an organ-based system uh, approach, and we have uh, six or seven courses that they go through up until January of their second year. At that time, they uh, take their uh, United States medical licensure exam, step one, and passing that, then they, they move on to clerkships. And clerkship is a year-long experience in which the students go through various uh, core experiences that are fundamental to, to the practice of medicine. They do it in, in the hospital or in an ambulatory setting. 
and do the the, the standard clinical care uh, uh, and and uh, learn in that in that model. And, and usually they they do it in the presence of residents and and attending physicians who uh, understand what the curriculum is. And and there's a lot of teaching at the bedside, but there's also a lot of didactic teaching in, in, in that as well. And the students uh, ripe again for active learning by removing those lectures and, and inserting active learning that are very pertinent to their cases. Finally, uh, we have the advanced integration period, and that starts uh, about in the, toward the uh, two-thirds of the way through the third year. And advanced integration is comprises the elective portion of, of medical education where students can try out different specialties and, and do one month or two week rotations in various things that they are interested in. There's also some requirements as well. They must do an acting internship in medicine. They must do a month of surgery. They, they must do uh, a month of emergency medicine. And going through all of that at the same time, they are, are uh, taking this step two of their uh, licensure exam. And they're also applying for residency uh, placement. Following graduation, all of the uh, graduates move on to residency training, which is uh, between three and five years of, of additional clinical experience in a, in a specialty. Yeah, no, that was a good take. And, and Bill, something I didn't tell you early before, but my fiance is actually just starting her residency now for general surgery. And so she's got a five-year one. So oh, yeah. after hearing kind of... huh, <laughs> And then fellowship probably. After yeah, that. probably. <laughs> but the thing is, she's not sure exactly what specialty she wants to go within that yet. So she's just going general to figure it out. But but yeah, after hearing kind of what you've gone through, I'm like, yep, this sounds pretty familiar. Right. And And physicians are notoriously addicted to training. So they invent additional fellowships and other experiences, and plus all of the continuing medical education that's needed to, to maintain licensure, and then recertification every five years in its specialty. So there's a, a lifelong training that has to happen uh, because you're continually certifying that you're uh, fit to practice. And that means that we really want to teach uh, students to be lifelong learners and to engage in active learning as they go through their careers because that's the, 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 the way that you get the best retention and the deepest level of understanding. And, and to have that is a big advantage as you're going through these fi every five-year recertification exams. Yeah, for sure. And, and kind of what you said before, Bill, about how the data really has been pretty staggering overall. And of course, after kind of looking at the website, I see that you guys have an evaluation and research group in the works already for, your pro for the program at University of Vermont to kind of assess and see how the active learning model is in terms of whether they're being effective or not. But do you think you could go into a little bit more detail about how this group specifically operates and how you guys are measuring effectiveness? The faculty uh, is one of the conditions of implementing active learning, want to study it. And, and as I said, everyone's either a scientist or a clinician, and but all of us follow the same rules of, of evidence and, and ensuring that we're, we're actually doing something meaningful. And in addition, we want to gather those data to do uh, quality improvement over time. And, and so it's important when you're introducing something like this to have a, a, an evaluation plan. And so we formed a group uh, through our teaching academy. And, and uh, I should back up and, and point out that in order to get the faculty well-versed in active learning methods and to help their careers as educational researchers, we formed a teaching academy, and this is uh, a uh, group of faculty who have 
gone through a vetting process and and are uh, committed to uh, creating a community of, of medical education scholars. And um, they help each other and, uh, and help the, the remainder of the faculty develop their teaching skills. And it's led by a, uh, an endowed professor of medical education who uh, has spent her life uh, really as a medical education researcher and, and, uh, and a faculty development expert. And so we feel pretty well equipped then moving forward that we have the people that we need to develop this. One of the groups that the Teaching Academy has formed is the evaluation group, and they are busy designing tools to, uh, to help study the implementation and success of active learning. One of the rules that we, we invoked was that all of innovations of, uh, that are in the curriculum should be studied and made into scholarship. In addition to just doing it, we want to study it and, and, and disseminate it uh, to other schools and, and uh, help them develop a, a more rigorous curriculum for, for medicine. So we also want to develop products uh, and, and modules for teaching various things in the curriculum. And, and one of our uh, imperatives there is to make sure that those products get out there. They're put into national curriculum repositories and are available to other medical and, and health science educators to use in their curriculum as well. So those are our criteria. We're getting a lot of feedback. Yeah, Bill, I mean, this sounds so, like a really innovative program that, that I could definitely see catching on like wildfire across the nation. Um, that being said, uh, you know, aside from the degree of active learning utilization being done at the University of Vermont, how is this program similar and how is it different to many of the medical school programs in the U.S. currently? Well, I would say we're on the leading edge of the active learning implementation. There's an other schools that have been really embracing uh, active learning as well. And so I don't want to pretend that we are the only one, but we're certainly among the leaders, I would say in this regard. And one of the other schools is, uh, is Stanford, one is Harvard, and uh, another one is uh, Commonwealth Medical School in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and, and another one is uh, Wright State in Ohio. These are the schools that I think are, are really taking the leap, but we're one of the very first to say, you know, lectures are out and we want to we phase those out of the, the curriculum. So that kind of makes us unique. Um, another thing that makes this unique is the is the structure of the curriculum that I that I explained earlier. Um, the three level curriculum in, in which the foundations is is only about a year and a half is actually unusual among medical schools. It's becoming a trend to to get to that point, but we're one of the very first of schools, if not the first, to to, to dramatically shorten the basic science years, and this creates room at the other end of the curriculum so that students have more time in the fourth year uh, to explore their career options and to, uh, and to help them with their residency placement. So those are some of the unique aspects. But be that being said, all medical students in, the, in this country have to uh, go through the, the licensure process. All of them have a basic science component and a clinical education component, and all of them uh, have uh, to, to meet standards of accreditation, which are pretty rigorous and, and ensure that uh, although medical schools can be different from each other, the, the end product is, is pretty much assured to be similar. 
Yeah, Bill, the similar thing kind of works within the field of physical therapy as well in regards that, you know, the academic, there's a didactic and there's a clinical education component. You know, of course, the schools kind of base the curriculum and stuff based on um, off of accreditation board and also what's kind of on the national licensing exam. So there's definitely some similarities in that regard as well. And, you know, I realize this is the kind of the next question I'm going to ask you is kind of a loaded one here, but you know, Bill, in your experience, what are some things that you feel need to change in medical school education uh, to better prepare students for being physicians in today's day and age? Well, I think we need a whole other podcast to get through that. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that there's a few things that are that are important. And, and I think that various medical schools have embraced various aspects of this. But I don't think anybody has all of those the intangibles down perfectly, including University of Vermont. But I think that we need to focus on a closer alignment between what medical practice actually is and what's taught in medical school. And, and uh, you know, med- healthcare is changing so dramatically that, that it's sometimes difficult to keep up with those trends uh, and, and to really match the, the, the graduates with, the, with what's needed in the workforce. But, but having that in mind, I mean, we should be focusing on, on those, those things because we want to, our, our, you know, our fiduciary responsibility as a medical school is not to students, it's, it's to the public. And, and we make doctors for patients. And, and th- therefore, we should probably try to align that practice with, with what we uh, teach as, as much as possible. So we really should focus more on practice-based uh, education. The, the, the fact is that a very large portion of medical education is, is inpatient, but we know that medical care is largely outpatient. So there's a, a difference right there that we have to focus on. And, and, and I think that a lot of the, the reason why we focus on inpatient so much is that faculty and, and just the physicians that are practicing like what they do, and, and they want to make sure that they can attract medical students into their own fields. And so, and, and all of the, we, we base medical schools at hospitals, and therefore we have to teach way too much inpatient medicine. The other thing is we, we have a time-based curriculum in most medical schools, and, and really that doesn't mean anything. You know, it, we really should focus on competency-based education and and ensure that everyone everybody is at the same level of competency when they graduate and that means that for some people medical school could be shorter than 4 years and for some people it should be longer than 4 years and but but that's something that we haven't approached just yet but in in alignment with practice based education we obviously have to have a much greater attention to interprofessional education medicine is not practiced in a silo although it may be taught in a silo and, and so we have to get the other professions much more involved and in, in, in ter- learning from each other and, and, and helping that uh, education move along. Finally, you know, as I said, it's a team-based sport, but we, we very often teach medical school in a single, uh, single student environment. So, so you sit in a chair and you listen to lectures, et cetera. And, and so what we're trying to do here and, and what all medical schools should be doing is to move students more into a team-based approach where they learn to uh, help each other. They learn to work in a team and, and develop non-cognitive skills that will be useful later in, in the practice of medicine. Yeah, Bill, that is music to our ears, man. You know, practice-based learning and interdisciplinary practice are two two reasons we've kind of started this podcast. So 
love to hear that. But um, what, what do you think medical students, uh, practicing physicians, and medical educators can do to contribute to, to these issues and really help make them better? Well, I think the practicing physicians need to, to speak out about it. You know, I, I think a lot of the practicing docs that I talk to view medical school as kind of a rite of passage and, and, and you know, or have a pet idea about how medical school should be changed. But, but I do think that, that saying that, first of all, medical, medical education is important and that we should align our, our practice environments with an educational environment as well. And, and so recognizing that we have to bring the next generation of physicians in. So we shouldn't be stuck with things like teaching services and non-teaching services, et cetera. Everything should be a teaching service, and, and we should really fairly compensate faculty for their time, but, but at the same time recognize the responsibility of, of the profession to continue the educational practice. But the main thing is that students and, and faculty should advocate for change. And and, uh, it, and and really, a lot of these issues are talked about, and some of them are the resolutions are drawn up, but nothing ever happens. And and I do think that at some point that you know we have to put our foot down, and 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 the the people that are involved in in this in the practice of medicine need to you know, be familiar with the literature, apply the the rules of evidence to education, just like they do and insist on. For rules of practice and and uh, scientific standards of proof, and 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 we, we don't we don't flinch looking at the efficacy of treatments when we when we have evidence, but when we see education, we just sort of uh, are, are very nebulous. So I think holding education to the same evidentiary standards as as the scientific practice of medicine would go a long way in ensuring that some of these things always happen. Bill, no, that's that's a good point there, and. I'm going to ask you one question that I didn't write on the script just because I kind of thought about this as you were saying this, but, you know, kind of going through and kind of that, you know, lack of action that, why do you think that is? Do you feel like that's just more so just unsure and afraid or you feel like there's financial reasons or incentives for that? Or I'm, I'm just kind of curious with you being more on in an inside role there. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that the, uh, you know, this is again, another podcast, but, but the, uh, the commoditization of medicine in general has led to a, uh, a monetization of, of education. And, and so, for example, we know that there's RVUs and, and other measures of clinical productivity. Physicians are limited to 15 minutes per, per visit, and the, you, everything is down to charges and, and, uh, and accounting for procedures, and that's how physicians get paid. When a medical student is introduced into the environment, the argument is that there's no financial way to account for that, and they slow me down, and and I lose. I'm actually volunteering my time, and paying money for me to be able to teach a medical student. And so we have to incorporate medical students and and other health learners into the mix, the financial mix, to understand how how this is going to work. And I, and I think that having having attending physicians and other faculty who understand the principles of education and are there because they want to be, we'll, we'll put pressure on the system and, and make a change. And, and uh, you know, right now we have the, the, the largest growth in healthcare right now is in the for-profit sector. These are uh, groups that have really no little or no interest in, in education. And, and at some point, you know, we have to we have to strike that balance and say, well, we're going to need providers in the future. And actually, we need more providers than ever. And so we have to make sure that that the healthcare environment always includes an accounting of the, the, 
cost and, and, and structure of education. Yeah, I think that was very interesting to hear. And, you know, kind of in the PT realm, we've kind of faced somewhat of a similar degree in terms of kind of getting relationships and partnerships between academic, academic, the academic side and the clinical side. And to a degree, I mean, even so, like a lot of clinical sites take students for free, despite some of the things that the clinicians have to do extra, you know, in terms of productivity and that as well. And they're getting to the point now in PT where some of them are actually charging the academic institutions to take a student now because of what they're going through. So I thought that was interesting to hear from the medical side of it. And, you know, Bill, we'd like to ask this question at the end to all of our guests to give see what everyone's take is. And realizing you may have brushed on this before, but maybe, maybe not. But the question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, um, medicine or other healthcare provider related, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? Well, and this may be uh, unknown to, to an audience of physical therapists, but, uh, or maybe not. Uh, the, and that is, I, I, would, I would change what I consider to be one of the primary drivers of medical education today, and that is residency selection. So as I said, every medical student in order to practice has to do a residency and residency program directors have devised selection practices, which in large part drive the, the structure and, and, and put constraints on uh, medical education and the curricula around the country. And, and I don't think the general public realizes or anybody outside of, of medicine realizes that this is happening. And so there's a, a, just a few things that are done that, that greatly affect this process. So, for example, much of the fourth year of medical school, so four years of medical school in general, much of the fourth year is spent by students trying to get a residency. And this, just the fact that this takes a whole year, uh, chews up an entire year of the curriculum and really makes the, 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 a lot of the curricular elements less important to the students and or they want them tailored to that residency selection process. And therefore, elective selection in the curriculum is, is really determined by what they think is going to give them the greatest advantage for a particular residency program rather than being driven by intellectual curiosity or rounding out the, your medical knowledge or, or abilities. And the other uh, thing, there is a pressure by the residency programs to rank medical students and, or, and disqualify students from getting residencies because they don't want the low standing students. So if you rank your students from one to 100, nobody wants, nobody wants the hundredth person. But that person may have passed a competency-based curriculum and, and really in terms of the minimum competencies is, are no different than number one. But the residency programs don't want that person. And that leads to the final thing and, and that is the inappropriate use of tools like uh, USMLE board scores to triage the, uh, the, the applicants for determining who even gets an interview for a residency. A recent study showed that only about 15% of all residency program directors would even interview, consider interviewing a, a student who had failed the boards one time. You can take the boards six times and pass them. So this is a huge driver of education. And so the students spend inordinate amounts of time trying to polish their board scores or get a good score. They, they often skip parts of the curriculum because they're off studying for the boards. And, and really, it, it doesn't serve the public in any way. All it does is stratify students based on uh, a, a, a test of basic science knowledge 
that's given halfway through the medical curriculum. That's pr the primary uh, driver of, of residency program selection. And so I would change that. I would make that test pass fail and make the program directors actually review the individual records of the students as opposed to triaging them based on a board score. Wow, Dr. Jeffries, that is a great insight. I did not know about that. Absolutely amazing take on that. Very cool. Um, could you possibly give our audience a little bit about where they can find you online and on social media? Uh, sure. Um, you can find a, uh, anything you want about our curriculum at med.uvm.edu. Uh, we also have our annual report there, and uh, you can see all the new things we're doing with active learning. Um, you can f follow me on Twitter at, uh, at Bill Jeffries, B-I-L-L-J-E-F-F-R-I-E-S. And that's pretty much the only social media I'm on. <laughs> no, awesome. And for our listeners who are curious, we'll provide the links to uh, University of Vermont's program in the podcast show notes as well. And, you know, thanks so much, Bill, for all that you've gone through. If they're saying what you said at the end, it definitely... I could definitely say that struck a lot of chords, you know, seeing my fiance going through the program as well. And I, I thought that was really good to bring out into the light. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. And it's been a lot of fun. No, thank you so much. The pleasure is all ours. Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET podcast on Instagram HET podcast on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.